This morning's reading is John chapter 21 from verse 1 through to the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who also had leaned against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. 
So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, brother. My accent sounds so lame now, doesn't it? <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, my name's Sam, if we haven't met. Um, it's my privilege to preach that chapter um, this morning. Let me pray, and we'll, we'll get into that. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, there's just precious um, realities in this chapter uh, for us to consider this morning, and just we recognize our, our need of help. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't hear this word, preach this word. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would be our ever-present help right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is it, isn't it? Isn't that exciting? Well done, everybody. Uh, this is the end of John's Gospel. Well, not the end of the Gospel, but for us, uh, this is the last sermon, sermon number 56. Into the final chapter, I had to um, really control myself. I did write this long section of recapping everything that we've seen, and, and I deleted it because we got a whole chapter to get through, and there is no time for that kind of thing. But I did go back and read at least some of my first sermon. The first sermon of the series, it was February 27th, 2022. I'm sure you all remember it, but in case you weren't here, of course... Here's something that I said. Um, I used an illustration um, to kind of describe what I hoped might be our reality as we go through the book of John. And believe it or not, the illustration came from the book or the Chronicles of Narnia. And it's a scene where the Pevensey children have returned to Narnia. They've been away from Narnia for several years. They've gone back in. They're having a terrible time of it. Not much is going right. They haven't seen Aslan, the lion, the, 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 the type of Christ in the story. They haven't seen him, but finally they do. And let me read. It says this, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell. Half sitting and half lying between his front paws, he bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all round her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. Well, that is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not, but every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And I said, I kind of hope that that might be our experience as we come back again and again and again, back to the book of John, that in a sense, Jesus in our eyes will get bigger. He doesn't actually get bigger. He is who he is. He couldn't be more and yet to us in our experience of I mean, our understanding, oh, he is, he is more excellent 
that as we come back, He's more compassionate. He's more gracious. He's more of kind of all the things that we might have hoped that he would be. He's just, he's more, he's more glorious we could have imagined. I pray that has actually been somewhat true for us as we've gone through the book of John. So let's, let's look at our passage. It's an epilogue to the book. Um, I was told, uh, I think Jaden down at Liberty Mermaid used this um, illustration of what's going on here. I think it's, it's, it's helpful. It's kind of like, if you've watched a Marvel movie, you know that the things kind of wrap up, but then if you stay a bit longer, you do get some secret scenes at the end, which kind of tie up some loose ends from the movie and point you forward to what's coming next. And that's a little bit of a sense of what we get in this passage. If you remember like last week, it does, does feel like, yeah, things kind of wrapped up nicely at the end of the passage at the end there. You know, like it really was climactic. Like in this moment, Jesus again reveals himself as the resurrect, he's, he's resurrected, he's alive, comes to Thomas and Thomas has that, that climactic statement of who Jesus is, my Lord and my God. And John says, that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book so that you would believe that you might not see Jesus alive like that, but I wrote this book so you would come to the same conclusion. You would come before Jesus. You would say, my Lord, my God. That's what John says. Hey, I've written these things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Roll the credits. It seems wrapped up, doesn't it? But then it's not. Actually, there's a couple more things to say. There's some loose ends, and we need to point forward. What comes next? And a lot of it centers around Peter. What is next for Peter? Lately, things haven't been going that well for Peter. Most centrally, if you remember back in chapter 13, in the upper room, the night that Jesus would be betrayed, he said these things. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So later in chapter 18, Peter is in the courtyard of the high priest. And we read this, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of his this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And then a few verses later, it says, they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it. And he said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, another moment he got wrong, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it and at once a rooster crowed. So then what is next for Peter? I think we're interested to know because it'll help answer questions that we have. Because failure is not unique to Peter. We've all experienced failure. And so the answer to Peter might just be the answer 
for us. And you might have come to that point in your life where you, where you have thought at times, where, how, where do I go from here? I, I can't believe I just did that. I have shamed the Lord publicly. I denied him. I have failed. I've returned to that sin again. Is there, what next for me? Am I of any use to the Lord now? Am I still loved by the Lord? After my failures? Well, let's see in the passage. Verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So just two big ideas from that, from that first verse. The first thing is that Jesus is going to reveal himself. That's very clear made in, the, in the first verse. He says it twice. Jesus is going to reveal himself. He's going to reveal himself. The main thing that we're going to get out of this passage is the revelation of Jesus. And the main thing that Peter needed to know and needed to see in this moment of crisis in his life is he needs a revelation of the Lord Jesus. Oh, I pray that that will be our experience this morning. We'll have a revelation of the Lord Jesus. But the second thing to notice is the, is the importance, I think, of the words in this way. Do you see at the end? Jesus revealed himself to them and John says, in this way. I think that signals that there is, there, there is significance and there is purpose and there is importance to almost every aspect of the way that Jesus reveals himself to the disciples. He can reveal himself to the disciples in any way that he wishes. He's already done it a couple times, but he does it here in this story in this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of the disciples were together. So we have seven of the 11. It's got a ring to it. They have left Jerusalem, obviously. They have come home. They're hanging out by the sea. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. That's well, normally just a great idea, isn't it? Everybody loves fishing. No, not everyone loves fishing, actually. None of people like Good for you. Have a good time. Uh, but, but, you know, we live on the Gold Coast. We have a lot of opportunities to go fishing. And so it might just seem like a very ordinary thing to say. Like, maybe your friend of yours said it this week. They're like, let's go fishing. Well, I'm going fishing at least. And, but then in this moment, it does seem a bit strange, doesn't it? So this is what happens next. Jesus has revealed himself. He's alive. Next story. Peter's like, I'm going fishing. Now, on a practical level, you could just read it like, well, the guy's got to eat, you know, he's like probably hungry and every people, you know, he likes fish. And so he's just, don't read into it too much. But I think there's more going on. Remember, Jesus revealed himself to them in this way. In the context of Peter's failure and where to next for him, you find Peter saying, I'm going fishing. What is that? Where did Jesus find him before he called him to come follow him? What was Peter doing? He was fishing. And it says that he left his nets and he followed Jesus. And Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. See, I think what Peter's doing right now is in this moment, he's saying, hey, I've blown it. I'm going back. I've, I've, I've so severely blown it. I promised so much. Look at my failure. I think it's fishing for me. 
And so now he goes back home, back to Galilee, and he takes back up his nets. It's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? I think the devil would want it this way. After we've failed to think, I might just go back to my old ways. I might just go back to my old life. That just seems so much easier than continuing to fight and continuing to follow. It seems so much more familiar. I know my old ways. I remember my old ways. Maybe they weren't such bad old ways after all. You might not say I'm going fishing, but perhaps you might say, I'm I'm going to go back to that place. Or I'm going back to him. I'm going back to her. Or I'm going back to drinking. Or I'm going back to all these other things I gave up when I followed Jesus. See, I'm, I'm giving up. Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. So Peter, he's a natural leader. I don't even know if it was an invitation. He didn't say, he wasn't like, hey, everyone, who wants to go fishing? He's like, I'm going fishing. They're like, we're going to come too. Let's all go fishing. They went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing, says. How discouraging is that? Oh, man, I've blown it here and I've blown it here. I can't. At least I know how to fish, right? You know, I'm going to get back in that boat. And the one thing that I know I can always rely on, my backup kind of thing, if ministry didn't work out, I'm going to go back to my fishing. He goes out fishing, catches nothing. And Jesus reveals himself to them, remember, in this way. This is not an accident. When Jesus reveals himself to them, it is going to be in the context of their total inability to do anything apart from him. And that's that's what Jesus said in the upper room. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That includes fishing. Whether you're fishing for men, or you're fishing for fish, you think you could do anything apart from me? No, you can't. Included um, in our email about the prayer gathering this afternoon, included that phrase. Why do we pray? Why, why, Why have a prayer gathering like we will this afternoon? Why? Because apart from him, we can do nothing. So verse four begins, just as day was breaking, right? And so notice they went fishing at night, but day is breaking. And then for the, so for the last time in John's gospel, we notice the, the use of this, this symbolism, this metaphor of, of night and day, light and dark. They went out fishing in the dark. Dark is a picture of ignorance. It's a picture of confusion. It's a picture of lostness. But light, it's a picture of revelation. It's a picture of understanding. Nicodemus came at night. Mary was looking in the empty tomb at night but when day broke. And so day is breaking again. And it says that Jesus walks up on the shore. They don't know it's Jesus yet. And he calls out to them, children, do you have any fish? Now, children there, uh, paideia is the word. And it can just mean like, lads, guys, fellas, have you got any fish? It's a very fisherman type talk to do, isn't it? You know, it's kind of obligatory, isn't it? If you walk past someone fishing, you're like, hey, mate, you got any fish? You know, so Jesus says, hey, guys, any fish? They're biting? They go, nope. They're honest fishermen. Jesus says, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some more. Again, 
It seems like very normal fish. I'm not a massive fisherman, so I could be wrong, but this sounds like fisherman talk. Ah, have you tried over there yet? Um, you know, I went fishing um, not a few months ago, took, took the boys along and went down to the Wynnum Pier to, to do some fishing off the pier there. We, I don't have a clue what we're doing, but we, and it, it seemed like that was obvious to everyone around us. We're carrying the rods down there, and, but a bloke sees us and he starts giving us advice straight away. This, this is very fisherman type things to do. And he goes, you know what you got to do for bait? You got to use bread. That's what you got to do. You got to use the bread. And I was like, this is excellent because we have bread. And that means I don't have to buy bait. So this is free. I w- we were going to eat the bread, but now let's let the fish eat the bread. And um, I just saved a few bucks on bait. Well, we caught nothing. So I don't know if that's, that helped at all, but we saved some money. So I was pretty happy with that trip fishing. Anyway, <laughs> Jesus says, where to fish? He's like, try the other side. I'm like, okay, let's try the other side. They still don't know it's Jesus, but they give it a go. And it says, now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And Jesus reveals himself to them in this way. So that whether you're a fisher of fish or a fisher of men, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so it is God who ultimately does the catching. So now John realizes it's Jesus, right? He's like, whoa. He turns to Peter. Verse 7, it is the Lord. Imagine the look on his face. It is the Lord. Now, last time Jesus did a miracle very similar to this, where they were fishing and couldn't catch anything. Try this. They caught a lot. Do you remember what Peter's reaction to that was? To that miracle, that revelation of Jesus? He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And Jesus said to him, do not be afraid, for now, from now on you will be catching men. But this time's so different, isn't it? What does Peter do? He puts on clothes and jumps in the water. You think, that's a, that's a strange... I'm going swimming. Let me put on my clothes and go swimming. That doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But John tells us, actually, it's stripped down for, for fishing. Right? Stripped down for work. Now, hopefully he had something on, but... If there it is, Peter, and he's got some in his underwear at least, and, and he thinks, I cannot jump into the water and present myself to the resurrected Lord Jesus looking like this. This is fine for the disciples, this is fine for fishing, but I will put on something for Jesus. And so he starts swimming. It says the others come back, you know, they're with the fish in the boat. And I just, you know, this is my, 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 <laughs> I just imagine that Peter's just been way too eager. He's like, it's the Lord, <laughs> jumps in. They're like, what are you doing? And the, the, the boat actually beats them to the shore. It's like, what are you doing, Peter? Come on, mate. Too eager. But anyway, we aren't told. Verse 9, it says this. When they got out on land, they saw what? A charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it, out on it, and bread. How awesome is that? What would Jesus do for the man who promised, I will never leave you? I'll die for you, but didn't deny him once or twice, but denied him three times. In that moment, he's on trial, being beaten. He just denies, abandons him. What would Jesus do? He'll make him breakfast on a charcoal fire. There's only two times in all the Bible 
there is mention of a charcoal fire. The first, it's the context where Peter denied knowing Jesus. They were around, John said, a charcoal fire. He arrives on the shore, and would you believe it, Jesus, the only other use of that phrase, a charcoal fire awaits him. What is Jesus doing? Well, Jesus is reinstating him. Jesus is addressing his sin. Jesus is showing Peter that there is not one detail of your sin that I am not fully aware of. None of it is outside of my knowledge. I know everything about you. And here's some breakfast. Peter, I love you. I want to reinstate you. I want to recommission you. You have failed miserably, but I've died for your sin. I have risen again. And let's have breakfast together. Let's eat together. Isn't this amazing? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Friend of sinners? Behold the, the gentle and lowly heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it? Rest for the weary soul. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Remember, Jesus reveals himself to them in this way. There is significance, I think, everywhere in this passage. There's three things that are mentioned. So here's Jesus. He set up a charcoal fire. And it says three main things happens next. Peter hauls a net ashore. We're told how many fish were caught. And we're told that the net wasn't torn. Why does he tell us that? Why is Jesus revealing himself to them in this way? Well, first of all, he hauled the net ashore. Hauled is the same Greek word that we've seen a couple other times in John's gospel. John 12, 32, Jesus says this. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw, will haul, same word, haul all people to myself. That's where they're going to go. When, when, when they're hauled, when they're drawn to me. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, hauls him, draws him to me. So the Father is hauling people to Jesus. And now we have Peter and he's hauling fish to Jesus. Do you see? So the Father's doing this. Jesus is there for people to come to and the, and the Father is drawing them. And Peter is going to be a part of that. He's going to be He's going to be commissioned to be part of that mission that the Father is doing in hauling people to Christ. Then we are told that there's a lot of fish, specifically 153. Now, scholars love that kind of stuff because they're like, oh, the significance of 153. Let me just read a little excerpt, excerpt from Don Carson's commentary, which surveys some of the ideas of what could have been going on with the number 153. He writes this, that 153 is a triangular number of 17 did not escape the church fathers. Augustine noted it and observed that 17 equals 10 plus 7. Well done. The 10 representing the 10 commandments and the 7, the sevenfold spirit of God. Others break 7 down into 3 plus 4, the number of the Trinity and the number of the New Jerusalem, the city built four square. Others have observed that 153 equals 3 times 50 plus 3, the double three pointing to the Trinity. 
Another scholar observes that in the feeding of the 5,000, there were originally five little loaves of bread and which, from which 12 baskets of scraps were taken up. And obviously, five plus 12 equals 17. And on it goes. Here's my take, for whatever it's worth. I think John uses the number 153 because it's the number of fish that are in the net at the time. Take it or leave it, but that's, that's my take. Um, <laughs> maybe the point is not actually the like, specific number, but maybe that's a lot of fish, right? And that fishermen might count their fish, it doesn't seem that strange to me. It's like, there's a huge amount of fish. One of the was like, we should count how many fish there are. There's 153 fish. Man, Bible scholars are going to go crazy over this one day. And so for Peter, as he hauls people to Jesus, hauls people to Jesus, they're going to come. And they're going to come in large quantities. What happens? Day of Pentecost, spirit falls. Peter preaches. He hauls people to Jesus. 3,000 are saved, baptized, added to the number of the church that day. Praise God. So then we are told that the nets weren't broken. What's that about? Well, as Peter, you can probably guess, as Peter casts the gospel net, draws many, many people to the Lord Jesus, there are none that will be lost. The nets will not break. John 10 verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You see, Jesus revealed himself to them in this way. It's just chock full of meaning. So the stage is now set. We can't touch on everything in this passage because it's a big passage. But the stage is now set for the conversation that had to happen. Verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, it says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon son of John, do you love me more than these? So you notice what it says? Jesus said to who? Simon Peter, and then calls him Simon, son of John. What's going on there? Well, Simon, son of John is the name that he used to have before Jesus said, actually, it's going to be Simon, son of Peter now. That happened back in chapter 1, verse 42. It says, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. That's what you're going to be now. What does Jesus call him his old name? Well, Peter means rock. Peter, you've not been acting very rock-like lately. But Jesus is going back to the beginning, back to the very start. It's time to restart all of this again. And the question Jesus asks is this, do you love me? What a question. You notice what he doesn't ask? He doesn't ask lots of other good questions. Simon, son of John, are you justified? Simon, son of John, are you converted? Simon, son of John, are you a believer? Because he'd probably say in that moment to all of those, I'm not sure. I don't really know. 
I hope so. But I don't know. Jesus doesn't even ask him, Simon, son of John, do you repent of what you did that night? Do you regret what you did? Are you ashamed of what you've done? No, instead, Jesus asks the question underneath all of those questions, the answer to which is the answer to all of those other questions. Simon, son of John, do you, do you love me? And that's a question Peter can answer. Of course, Jesus doesn't just say, do you love me? No, does he? He adds something at the end of that. Do you love me more than these? More than what? It's a few options. Do you love me more than you love the disciples? Maybe. Or is it, do you love me more than you love fishing? Which you've gone back to. Or is it, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Now, of course, he ought, the first two ought to be true. You, you ought to love Jesus more than you love the disciples. You ought to love Jesus more than you love fishing. But I think it's the third, and most commentators I've read agree. It's the third. But that's a strange thing to ask, isn't it? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than everybody else loves me? Strange thing to ask. But then it was him who claimed as much, who said things like, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Like it was him that was like, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to die for you. He's the one who's been claiming superior love and allegiance for the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you, on this side of your denials, do you still think like that? Do you love me more than everybody else loves me? What will he say? Look at his answer. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he only answers half the question, you see. He answers the, do you love me half? He does not get involved in the more than these part. Like old school Peter, I think, would say, oh, you know I do. You know it. You know my allegiance. You know how, man, I, I am, I'm your main follower. I'm the main one. I will show these guys what love really looks like for you. But no. His confidence for saying he loves Jesus is not in comparison with others. But what is it in? It's in Jesus' ability to see his heart. It's in Jesus' knowledge of him. Lord, you know, you know that I love you. Perhaps I don't love you as much as I ought. I don't love you as consistently as I ought. I have fallen so, f and, and, and sh I'm sure that, you know, if you just went by what I, the way I've been and what I've done, it might not seem that I love you much at all. But, but you know, you do know, I know you know, I do love you. I love you. And then Jesus says to him, feed my lambs. Amazing. Commissions him with shepherd language. Care for my people. Care for my people, Peter. The main way you're going to care for them is you're going to feed them. You're going to feed them the word of God. 
God's people need to be fed the word of God. They must not be starved of his word. They must not be malnourished with being fed junk. No, give them the, the word of, of the God. Ezekiel 34, God rebuked the shepherds in Israel at the time because they would not feed his sheep. He says things like, ah, God says to them, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. And on it goes, Ezekiel 34. I think the church today is in many places, many ways, malnourished. Sheep go for lack of feed, lack of the food of God's word. So isn't it interesting that of all the things Jesus could say to Peter to commission him off, he says, feed my people. I love them. I love them. I don't know if you like being called a lamb or a sheep. You might go, mm, yeah, I do, actually. They're cute and cuddly. Well, that's not really actually the picture that it has in mind. It's more like dumb, weak, needy, defenseless, that kind of thing. So it's not super encouraging, but, you know, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't say, feed my thoroughbreds, you know. I've got stallions out there, feed them, you know. Feed my lions. But notice whose they are. My sheep. As you feed them, don't think they're yours. No, remember whose they are, Peter. Feed them actually because they're mine, because I love them. I laid down my life for them. I love my sheep. That's the category for who you feed. You don't go around feeding the ones you like, Peter. You know, the ones you get along with the most, the ones that cause the least trouble, the ones that don't bite back very much. No, feed my sheep. I love them. I love them. They're precious to me and I want them cared for. And so I'm telling you now, feed them, love them, care for them. We instinctively know, hey, we're meant to care for things a bit extra when they're not ours. You know, you say that to the kids sometimes, you know, when they're little, it's like, now be very careful with that. It's not yours. And it's like the Lord Jesus might say to pastors everywhere, now be very careful with them. They're not yours. They are mine. I purchased them. Now feed them, care for them. And that's the flow, isn't it? Do you notice the flow? First, do you love me? You know I love you. Okay, then you get to do something. Right? Love comes beforehand. The highest qualification of any pastor, you must love Jesus. So, you know, I've heard reports from pastoral search committees throughout my, <laughs> my life and the, the, all the list of different things you can look for in the future. Kumara Baptist, when you look for future pastors, etc. You know, there's so many things that just get thrown into the basket of what to look for. Some of them are fine and some of them, you know, but, you know, you can get the idea that, man, what are we looking for here? You know, we need a, we need a visionary. We need a this. We need a, a kind of people organizer. We need a CEO. We need, the, you know, not to say all these things at Royce, just the first and foremost question is on the job list of pastors, does he love Jesus? Does he? Verse 16 he, as Jesus, said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep, tend, care for my sheep. 
Verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Notice Peter is grieved this time. Why is he grieved this time? Because it's the third time. And he knows exactly what's going on here. He just remembers his failure. Oh, you're, oh, you're touching on this. You're touching on my, my darkest hour of sin. And you're asking me, do you love me? Verse 18. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, which is the 25th and final time that phrase is used in John's gospel. And every time it draws our attention, it adds solemnity to the moment. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. So Jesus paints the picture, Peter's future. Here's what it looks like. And it's a series of contrasts. You know, there was a time when you were young and there'll be a different time when you're old. When you were young, you dressed yourself, but there is coming a time where you will not dress yourself. Someone else will dress you. They will be dressing you. From, from going to wherever you wanted back in the day, you just went wherever you wanted. <coughs> a day is coming where you'll be made to go where you do not want to go. This was to show by what kind of death he will glorify God. And you notice it says, you will, you will stretch out your hands. Um, probably an indicator of the way he would die by crucifixion. That's how he'll die, in a death that glorifies God. No wonder Jesus finishes with the words, so follow me, follow me. Now, I think actually, literally in that moment, they've been sitting around and everyone's been present so far, and I think they actually do get up and walk away. But there's obviously deeper things going on. That is, follow me all the way to a crucifixion, to a death that glorifies God. Follow me all the way there. I mean, that is not what you've done, but that's what you must do in the future. I think it's amazing to think that that got said. And you read the book of Acts, and it's amazing that Peter, I mean, just how courageous he is from this point. You know, he just, he just goes at it. And he knows that there's coming a day where one day he'll be, he'll be made to go where he doesn't want to go. His, his arms will get stretched out. Like, he knows. He's just full of courage. He must have been hanging over his head every time he got arrested, every time he got beaten. Is this it? Is this the moment? Nope, not it. It's like for three more decades. He lives like this. But he knows one who did conquer death. And so... So what will Peter say to all of that, though? Well... Peter is maturing, and he is reinstated, but he is not yet perfected. And he turns around and sees John. So maybe John is following them as, as he and Jesus walk along. He turns around and he sees John. And what does he do? He throws, he throws John under the bus. Lord, what about this man? 
John must have been like, okay, okay, you don't need to bring me up, you know. <laughs> you can keep your, my name out of your mouth for now. That's okay. This is just for you and Jesus. Jesus says, verse 22, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This is like a whole sermon to be preached here. But Peter, you know, notice he didn't want to compare his love with others. Do you love me more than these? I don't want to compare. But he does at this moment want to compare sufferings. And he's like, okay, so that's for me. What about, like, what about him over there? And Jesus says, what difference does that make? Like, even if he's alive till I come. So John clarifies it. It's like, he's not saying that John is going to stay alive till I come back. But the point is like, even if he never dies, even if he lives until I come back, he just never dies. What difference does that make to you? You, Peter, follow me. It's profoundly helpful. Because there are things that we share in common in our church family. There are things that we don't. We all love Jesus, I pray. We seek to follow him. But what cost that has in our lives will vary. And some of us might die. And some of us will live. Some of us might lose their job. And others won't. And our, our thing will not be like to look around and go, hey, how come I suffer more? It's, Jesus says to each one of us, no, no, you follow me. You. Whatever God has in plan. So now before we just read the last two verses, I just want to apply this story. It as a whole. Um, we began with the, the question of what next after failure. That's how we began. And surely there may be some in this room who this is perfect timing. Where you are asking exactly that. I have failed and what next for me? My life has been a bit of a train wreck, in your words, I have fallen and stumbled my way to this point. Is what is there for me next? Well, let's all together see the kindness of Jesus appearing to Peter in this way. In the midst of his failure, both in following Jesus and fishing. Can do nothing apart from him. And Jesus comes and makes him breakfast, initiates reconciliation. Do you know a reminder of that, the verse, you know, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. The reason Jesus can ask is, do you love me? It's, it's on the other side of his cross and his resurrection. He first loved us. And then he commissions Peter in his grace. So Jesus is asking us this morning, most fundamentally, do you love me? Um, I have a brother and his name's Ben. He's actually here this morning. He's not usually here, but he's visiting this morning. And um, he used to be a builder. Um, and back in the day when he was a builder, I remember he had this phrase. And the phrase went like this. And it was very annoying, but here, here it was anyway. He used to say, boys, safety. Tell me if I get this wrong. <laughs> safety comes first, second, and third. Then we get the job done. Right? Is that right? And so we were <laughs> any job in the backyard. Safety comes first, second, and third. Then we get the job done. Well, I think Jesus might even say this morning, love for me comes first, second, and third. Then we can get stuff done. He asked him three times of all, do you love me? 
he looks Peter in the eye, I just, with, with, with everyone around, in just that moment to say, Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know that I do. Okay, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Must have taken him back. Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Okay, tend my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He's grieved. Jesus asks, and he asks, I think, to, to drill in, to see the weight, feel the weight and the importance of this question. And he asks, and he asks until Peter is grieved at the question so that it fully lands with its full weight. And, 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 and we could do it right now just to, to ask you to really reflect in your heart, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? No, no, no. Do you? love him? Do you love him? Love him? Actually, it's not a question from me. It's a question from Jesus saying, do you love me, the person of the Lord Jesus? How would you answer? On what grounds would you go to first to answer that question? I know where, where I could go. Do I love I, I preach the Bible. I lead Bible studies. I'm a pastor. I read thick theology books sometimes. I listen to podcasts, you know. I, I disciple people. You might say, do I love you? I'm a member of Coomera Baptist Church. I've served on the, the worship team. I do kids ministry. I attend Bible study and I go to gospel communities. I am gifted in these ways. I've been used by God. I've gone to Bible college, got a degree. Do I love you? But those are all externals, hey, and they don't actually answer the question quite yet. You might say, do I love you? I love being forgiven. I love the idea of, of, of knowing the creator of the world. I love, I love having purpose in my life. I love the sense of acceptance that I enjoy. You have not yet answered the question. No, not the benefits of Jesus. The question is, do you love Jesus? J.C. Ryle says, we may know much and do much and profess much and talk much and work much and give much and go through much and make much show in our religion and yet be dead before God from want of love. See, Peter banks the knowledge, banks on the knowledge of Jesus of his heart. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Is that a comfort to you this morning? He knows. He sees you, sees your heart. Is that a comfort? Or is that a concern? Oh, he knows. Because of course, he knows us. So that means if we do love him, he knows that. If we don't, he knows that too. If we do love him, well then let's, let's get to work. We are kind of useless if we don't love him. But if we do, and if you do, whatever you've got and hap has happened, you are of great use to the Lord Jesus. Great use in the kingdom of God. And if we love him, he would say to us, I think all of us this morning, I don't think it's just for pastors, care for my people. 
care for one another, love one another, feed one another God's word, share with one another. Jesus says, do you love me? Look after my sheep. Give them the word of God because that's where their comfort is. Feed them on the word because that's where all their hope is. Feed them on the word because that's where I'm revealed. Feed them on the word because that's where forgiveness in me is found. Feed them on my word because that's where eternal life that you can know now and forever is found. Feed it to them. Do everything you do for the love of Christ. You can put that again, like a banner. Why did you do that? I did it for the love of Christ. Um, Alexander Strauch writes about Hudson Taylor. He said this, Hudson Taylor, founder of the China Inland Mission, believed that this, if money could motivate the merchants of England to cross life-threatening oceans and enter the interior of China at great personal risk of loss and life, could not the love of Christ motivate missionaries to do the same for the sake of the gospel? Isn't that interesting? Isn't it, is it possible that for love of money, people will do more than we would from love of Christ, from love of the Lord? So for the sake of the love of Jesus. Um, we don't have to, you can go to China, but you can also do very ordinary, normal things. For the love of Christ, come to prayer gatherings. For the love of Christ, serve with the kids. For the love of Christ, be regular. For the love of Christ, show hospitality to one another. For the love of Him. For the love of Christ, forgive one another. For the love of Christ, share the gospel with the lost. For the love of Christ, see needs around you and meet those needs for brothers and sisters. For the love of Christ, fight sin and temptation in your life and be more and more holy. For the love of Jesus, ultimately follow Him, even if it means you might die a death that glorifies God, but do it for the love of Him. You know, if you aren't a Christian here this morning, um, it's, uh, it's wonderful, I think, for you to be here and to hear this. Because I think for, for many people, it was like, oh, I did not know that was the question that Jesus asks. I thought the question was, are you being good enough? Have you attended church enough lately, you know? I, you know, you, you thought the question was, am I a moral person? Am I a good person? Then I'll be fine. You did not realize that actually the question is, do you love the Lord Jesus? The question underneath all other questions. Well, you can't love someone you don't really know, hey? So come to know him. Know him in his word. Be in fellowship. Listen to his word taught. Read his word. John wrote this book so that we might know him. Okay, let me read out now the final two verses of John's gospel. It ends, these are awesome words. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let me pray. Father, uh, it's a simple question, but such a searching question. Do we... 
love you. Oh, we are lost if we, had, if we don't. We can perform all kinds of religious stuff and do all kinds of things. But the greatest commandment and the greatest call in our life is to respond to your love which came first by sending your son, dying in our place, rising again so we could be forgiven and right with you. Since you loved us first, may we be a church that loves you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.